Rowan, I hope you appreciate that my aesthetic and look today was designed to emulate your cool girl vibes. <laughs> I'm wearing a black shirt that says coffee, please. That one's just for me. That one's all me. But it's off the shoulder with a bun in my hair. <laughs> which I know you're going to look at me and you're going to say, I always do the off the shoulder thing, not as a cool girl thing, but as a, I can't be bothered to have my shirt <laughs> fit properly, to which I will say, makes you a cool girl. Don't quote me at me. <laughs> do not. <laughs> because all of these lovely humans don't know that you and I actually have conversations that aren't on a podcast. <laughs> no, I literally, I don't talk to you unless it's being recorded. I won't do it. I think about that sometimes, actually. <laughs> like, I want to call Tracy, but should I not? No, I'm going to call her anyway because I need constant attention so that I know that I'm loved. Every five-minute quick phone call for us turns into a two-hour FaceTime. Which is fully my fault. No, Because Tracy not. would never call me if I wasn't telling her she had to. Those are, no. those are the facts of life. Well, yeah. I, don't, I just don't call people. I'm bad at communicating. I love my friends dearly. But if I can't not talk to you for six months and then call you up out of the blue as if nothing changed... Friendship probably ain't going to work or last. <laughs> right, right. Although I, in the many time, years, times, in the many years that I've known you, I have learned, and it, this is also preferable for me. So I have learned that if I text you and ask you if I can call you, then the call goes so much better yes. than if I'm just, oh, I'll just call Tracy right now. <laughs> I'm not emotionally ready for that. You can't do that. You can't. I can't. You can't call me out of the blue. You cannot show up to my house out of the blue. I will ghost the heck out of you. I will just not. I will. Even if I do show up physically, emotionally, my soul is somewhere else and I can't process what's happening. Which is ironic because I have spent so much time in our relationship just being spontaneous at you. Yeah. To, to troll you, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't. I can't do that from far away because you don't get the the serotonin that I can supply you in other ways, like being spontaneous, but also bringing a pumpkin spice latte. Or well, and, and if it's like, oh, I'm going to spontaneously pick you up to go at a diner and hang out. It's like, chill. That sounds great. But if it's like, I'm going to spontaneously pick you up and go to a concert where we're in the mosh pit, I'm like, babe. <laughs> I need a month and a half warning I need to mentally year. prepare for that. And then also I'm going to find a way out of it. I don't want to be that close to strangers. Even before COVID, I didn't want to be that yeah. close to strangers. Yeah. Hey, you know what's horrifying? Strangers. You know what else is horrifying? Spooky season of this podcast. Are you ready for it? I'm Rowan Hall. <laughs> I'm Tracy Harrison. And we are the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast about ancient myths, local legends, why stories have staying power, and... Spooky season. Spooky. It is fall, y'all. It is time for pumpkin spice, pumpkin everything. It's time for maple. It's time for scary stories, ghosts, fires, s'mores. Ooh, all of that good spooky stuff. You didn't represent chai, and I'm leaving. Thank you. Chai's all year round. Do not, do not relegate chai to a specific season. No, I don't relegate any of these flavors to a specific no. season. I just... You know how things hit differently when yes. it's fall time when you watch leaves changing and you're drinking a hot chai it, it just it hits in an emotional way 
that I completely Mm -hmm. respect. So you're right. I did drop that off. (laughs) Speaking of correcting myself. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. Before we get into anything else, I want to say we are a podcast that discusses stories ranging from controversial mythology to spooky stories to real life history. Listener discretion is always advised, and we will try to warn you as best we can when something is particularly um, potentially triggering. In this episode in particular, we include topics of suicide and the loss of children. So a listener named Allison S. just sent us this message. Hey, y'all. I'm just starting in on your podcast, and I'm loving it. This is great. Y'all are awesome. Just a note, though, at some point you said committed suicide, and the better way to say it is died by suicide. It's a little thing, but I can tell y'all are social conscious and would probably want to know. Outside of that, I'm super excited to binge your podcast. I've already told a few of my friends to start listening. Thanks, y'all, and stay safe. First of all, Allison... Thank you for all the compliments, and thank you so much for taking the time to write in and teach us this important lesson about language. After receiving your email, we did some research further to illustrate Allison's point. To quote Jacek DeBeek, an assistant professor in the University of Michigan's Department of Psychiatry, as reported by the Huffington Post in an article on this exact topic, quote, The term committed suicide is damaging because for many, if not most people, it evokes associations with committed a crime or committed a sin and makes us think about something morally reprehensible or illegal, end quote. Robert Olson writes for the Center of Suicide Prevention, It cannot be denied that one of the crucial steps in reducing the stigma of suicide is to encourage dialogue. By examining the particular words used in a language of suicide, we can help facilitate this dialogue. This is an important effort because the CDC reports that in the United States, there is one death by suicide every 12 minutes, taking the lives of 44,965 Americans every year. By normalizing care-focused discussion about suicide, It is the hope of the bereavement community that more people will have access to or seek help. In the United States, you can reach the National Suicide Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. They provide 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress, as well as information for you or loved ones. Thank you for writing in, Allison. We really, really appreciate it. It's so nice to get mail. It's so nice to get mail. (laughs) It's so nice to get mail when people are engaging with what you're doing and teaching you to be better. Right. I would say what Allison did perfectly that I hope anyone else who wants to write in tries to do is she was so helpful and not... She didn't attack us. It wasn't about anything like that. It was just really, really helpful information for us to learn. And if we continue to do that for each other and for our own little community within this podcast, it's just going to make us a better platform to talk about these things. So truly, Allison, we can't thank you enough. That message was really helpful. And we're very grateful for you taking the time to reach out and talk to us about that. Also, you never have to stroke our egos to help us learn to be better humans. But 
it did not go unnoticed that you were very, very (laughs) nice as well. So thank you so very much. So this week, to start off spooky season at Willing and Fable, we are discussing two of the heavy hitter authors of the horror genre. And I could not be any more excited that this is what's kicking off Halloween, the season, the month, not the day. Yeah, and I'm excited. We we got, like you said, two of the heavy hitters, and we're doing them in an order that represents something that's really unique about the horror genre, that it has a clear line of succession. Starts with Mary Shelley, then you have Poe, then you have Lovecraft, and Stephen King, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's something that you don't see in a ton of other genres. You know, I think of fantasy, you think of Tolkien. Yeah, you can say George R. R. Martin is a is someone who came after Tolkien, but ideas stem from Tolkien and, and spreads outwards that way, whereas the horror genre, each person really respects the heavy hitter before them and takes it in their own way. So super excited to talk about these people and the influence they've had on the genre as a whole. Yes, I was editing my script until the last possible second. Actually, okay, that's not true. I was auditioning for something until the last possible second. And then right before we sat down to record, I was like, ah, crud, I have to edit this thing to say exactly what it said before, but I had to edit it. (laughs) (laughs) I cheated. You'll see why. (laughs) Okay. I cheated this week. (laughs) All right. So my story this week, I have the absolute privilege of covering Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein story. She is, without a doubt, one of my favorite larger-than-life figures in the world, period just in the world. So we're going to dive into it and see how it goes. I'm excited. Uh, I only know about her in the mythic sense, in the big, big grand ideas of who she was. I actually knew more about her than I did about the Frankenstein story for a long time. (laughs) I'm not surprised by that. (laughs) And then I realized... Was it early college? I don't know, that I had to catch up and... Oh, yeah. Uh, You'll hear why. Anyway, I got on the level with the story, but... Frankenstein. When I say Frankenstein, I'm going to guess you imagine a dark and stormy night, a scientist wild with power on the precipice of creation about to harness the energy of a lightning bolt to reanimate a creature sewn together from various corpses pilfered from a cemetery. And when this creature is shocked into existence, you will most assuredly imagine a massive, boxy monster all stitched together with green skin, bolts coming from his neck, a shambling walk, and a horrifying moaning as he chases innocent people through the village in his undead rage. My friends, I am here to tell you, you are picturing the iconic 1931 film titled Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, in which Boris Karloff delivers a performance that was so good 
that it basically sealed the deal on this story for the rest of time. Can I ask a question before you jump in and explain the real image of Frankenstein from the novel? Am I remembering correctly that he was actually pretty handsome? So the Frankenstein monster in the book is definitely not what you're getting in a lot of movies. And it's not... I would say it is described in a way that leaves a lot to the imagination. Okay. I, as a modern person reading Frankenstein, did not find the description very scary at all. But keep in mind, I have access to films in which you can watch someone's face getting bashed in. Like, my level of horror is not the same. And part of the early horror genre... Mary Shelley was what they don't tell you, you know, what's mm-hmm. what's between the, the lines. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would say no, not as scary okay. as the movie. Also, I the original Frankenstein monster could speak. Yes. And read and write. Or rather he learned in the course of the book and was very well-spoken that was part of his character Mm -hmm. and the 1931 movie made the frankenstein monster incapable of speech which i have a lot of feelings about (laughs) but we will get there i guess uh oh an interesting thing while we're on the subject actually tracy the movie the 1931 Mm -hmm. movie was not the first time that frankenstein's monster made a first in-person appearance. Frankenstein, as it was titled, was a play staged in London in 1823 during Mary Shelley's lifetime. And the creature appeared in the playbill as only a dashed line. (gasps) Mm -hmm. But we are totally getting ahead of the story. So (laughs) today we are discussing the novel Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, published in 1818. And we're going to dive into the woman who wrote it, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. No one ever talks about the actual full title of this book. And I remember being shocked the first time I heard that the story was called More Than Frankenstein. And I was even more shocked as a child to learn that Frankenstein is actually the scientist's name and not the monster's. In fact, the monster is only referred to in a similar fashion. The creature, Frankenstein's monster, and so on. At one point, uh, the monster says in the text, I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel. This moment is as close as he will ever come to a personal identifier in Mary Shelley's original text. There's a a famous, I don't know if it was a tweet or a quote or a Tumblr post, but it's intelligence is knowing that Frankenstein was not the monster. Wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein was the monster. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. Everything is D&D scores. So Mary Shelley's original version of the story, while definitely horrifying, 
begs so much more compassion for the creature and his new life Mm -hmm. than the Halloween costumes and films and popular culture of today will lead you to believe. Um, Right off, we have reference to two of the heavy hitters of the mythological world. When the creature references Adam, he is suggesting that Frankenstein, the scientist, was playing God and that his creation ought to be treasured as the first man, when in fact Frankenstein only mistreats this being from start to finish. Uh, If this isn't ringing any bells, by the way, you can check out episode 9, Fear of Women. Uh, My story about Lilith goes into more of the details about the story of the first man and woman in the Abrahamic telling. As for our Prometheus reference, in Greek mythology, this titan was the creator of mankind, having formed people from clay so that Athena could breathe life into them. He cared for his creations and taught them what they needed to survive. Then, famously, he stole fire from Mount Olympus to give to humanity, only to receive eternal punishment from the god Zeus. To quote Brit Lit, In the Romantic era, Prometheus came to be regarded as a symbol for civilization and intelligence, as well as scientific knowledge. By likening Dr. Frankenstein to Prometheus, Mary Shelley is referencing both his quest for creation as well as the horror that follows him. But more than mythological references, it's actually Mary Shelley's own life that might be the most interesting inspiration for her work. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, daughter of famed and in many circles shunned, feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, and philosopher William Godwin. Her mother passed about 11 days after Mary's birth. And the family she grew up in included her father's new wife, Mary Jane Claremont, and two siblings named Charles and Claire. Having spent her upbringing in her father and stepmother's bookstore, she was very well educated In fact, it may surprise you to hear that her first published work, printed by her own family's press, was the poem Mounsir Nongtenpah, not Frankenstein. Mary famously ran off with Percy Bache Shelley at the age of 16, with her stepsister Claire leaving in tow. There's even the accompanying story that she lost her virginity to Percy on her own mother's graveside, though that may be gothic embellishment that Mm, came along later. (laughs) She became pregnant and lost her first daughter not but one year after her elopement while the pair lived in poverty as Shelley hid from his creditors. And to be clear, I call it elopement because they behaved as if they were married, but at this point, they were not. Hmm. She became pregnant again very shortly after this and was very likely pregnant with her third child by the time she finished the famous Frankenstein story. In fact, between February 1850 and January 1818, when the first edition of Frankenstein was published. This is a three-year period. Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley 
faced the death of her first child, the birth of her second only a year later, her half-sister's death by suicide, the death of Percy Shelley's now-pregnant first wife by suicide, their ability to finally marry within that same month, the birth of her third child, the publishing of her actual first book, an autobiographical work titled History of a Six-Week Tour, and the shunning, or rather, I should say, her shunning from her own family. To say that this woman had a hard few years is... That's putting it mildly. Yeah, it's the understatement of the century. (laughs) In fact, the year following Frankenstein's publication, Mary Shelley's baby daughter and three-year-old son died, leaving the couple with no living children but pregnant with a fourth. Uh, To quote a beautifully conceived article from The New Yorker that was written by Jill Lepore, quote, The author had given birth to four children, buried three, and lost another unnamed baby to a miscarriage so severe that she nearly died of bleeding that stopped only when her husband had her sit on ice. In 1822, at the age of 29, Percy Shelley drowned to death, leaving Mary alone with one surviving child, widowed at the age of 25. I cannot imagine experiencing all of those things you just mentioned in your first 25 years of life. Yes, and just in case the timeline is a little confusing, she met this man when she was 15. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure the extent of her knowledge of it, but he was already married to another woman named Harriet that he also ran off with when she was 16. Hmm. This woman, Harriet, had a daughter and then was eventually or pregnant with Percy's second child mm-hmm. when Percy and Mary Shelley ran off together. She became pregnant. They were not able to marry until his first wife passed. Mm-hmm. Her father disowned her during this time. And then they proceeded to live through just tragedy after tragedy. And she published her first, well, she published Frankenstein, the her first major hit when she was 18. Wow. Ah. <laughs> Different times. Things moved quicker. Yeah, but even even for that time, she was really knocking it out of the park as far as uh, literary accomplishments go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in another particularly gothic move, after having her husband's body cremated, Mary, after having to fight with a friend of her husband's who also wanted it, managed to get a hold of her husband's seemingly calcified heart. Upon her passing at 53... The heart was found in her desk, wrapped in the pages of her husband's last poem, Adonais. Whoa. Yeah, that is... (laughs) Spooky queen, that's all I gotta say. So I'm gonna let you live with that for just one more second. 
before I note that while this seems very intense and spooky today, at the time of her life, it was not uncommon for people to have anatomical keepsakes of their deceased loved ones. Jewelry was commonly made of hair or teeth from a past relative, for example. And it was also very likely that the item wasn't really her husband's heart, uh, as that probably would have been burned during cremation. People have said that it might have been calcified due to tuberculosis, but it also might have been his liver or another of the various organs that have been listed. <laughs> you might know this more than I would. Weren't, weren't the pieces of jewelry that had, you know, hair or teeth or something of um, past relatives called memento moris? Mm-hmm. Okay. I knew a fact. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. I knew you know for sure. <laughs> While I was researching this, I saw a very cool ring that was made of teeth. Like... Honestly, it was a really gorgeous piece of work. Ooh. Uh, people, you know, people were utilizing those to grieve in a very different way than we do now. <laughs> so, while this might be the gothest story about Mary Shelley, it's not the only one that gets um, exciting and spooky. Mm-hmm. So... Back in 1816, before the publication of Frankenstein, Mary, Percy, their then-living son, and Mary's now-pregnant stepsister Claire traveled to Geneva to spend the summer with an eccentric poet named Lord Byron. I'm going to read from Wikipedia now because it includes an excellent number of Mary's own words within this quote. It proved a wet, ungenial summer, Mary Shelley remembered in 1831, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Sitting around a log fire at Byron's villa, the company amused themselves with German ghost stories, which prompted Byron to propose that they each write a ghost story. Unable to think of a story, young Mary Godwin became anxious. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. During one mid-June evening, the discussions turned to the nature of the principle of life. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated, Mary noted. Galvanism had given token of such things. It was after midnight before they retired, and unable to sleep, she became possessed by her imagination as she beheld the grim terrors of her waking dream her ghost story. Mary would go on to describe this time as the time when I first stepped out from childhood into life, which is an especially intriguing quote when you know the controversy behind their trip. She'd done so much in her life up to this point, too. It's interesting. I mean, she'd given birth once already, was pregnant with her second child, he, she had lost her first child. Um, she had her away second with ch- someone. You know, like it's just an it's just an interesting uh, thought process of this is what pushed her out from childhood into life. Not good or bad. Just an int- just it's just interesting. Yes, and this story that I'm about to tell you is one of the most widely publicized stories about her. Um, 
And I think it frames a lot of conversations about her life as well. So on the literary side, it was on this vacation that the famous tale Vampire was born. John Polidori, Byron's physician who stayed with the group, was inspired by the fragment Lord Byron wrote for their ghost story challenge. The story itself was first published in a monthly magazine under the title The Vampire, A Tale by Lord Byron. Though he denied authorship later, it's impossible to know how this plagiarism came to be, and it is due to Lord Byron's name on the text that it became so widely published. Literary scandal. Check. Now, personal scandal. The Shelley family went to Byron based on claims that Claire's child was his. Byron later demanded custody of Claire's daughter based on the Shelley's history with their children passing. Byron cruelly said, have they reared one? Before putting their daughter into a convent where she died at the age of five. There is, however, some suggestion that Claire had a relationship with Percy Shelley, either known or unknown to her sister Mary. They did all three live together, and there were plenty of rumors at the time of their lives. And some will say, based on Mary's own writing, that there was considerable evidence of a relationship And they go further to say that Mary helped cover it up. Mm. There is also a tale of Polyadori loving Mary, Claire having interest in Polyadori, and there was almost certainly a relationship between Lord Byron and Percy Shelley and opium. It would be shocking with Lord Byron's presence if there wasn't just so much opium. (laughs) He is one of the most eccentric figures that was alive at this time and was right there at the founding of horror. He is an interesting and controversial man Mm -hmm. in his own right. But when Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, was published, the authorship was anonymous. And there was a preface written by Percy Shelley a choice that no doubt helped to get the book published and encouraged the assumption that he was the author. Mm. Though later editions of the book bore Mary's own name, there has been incredible debate over the centuries about whether Percy Bechet Shelley was a co-author, an editor, or a colleague just giving sound advice. In the 200th anniversary edition of Frankenstein, literary scholar and poet Fiona Sampson wrote, quote, In recent years, Percy's corrections, visible in the Frankenstein notebooks held at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, have been seized on as evidence that he must have at least co-authored the novel. In fact, when I examined the notebooks myself, I realized that Percy did rather less than any line editor working in publishing today. Mary Shelley herself somewhat muddied the waters of the authorship, no doubt to protect herself, her family, Mm. or her income. 
at this time, it would not be unreasonable for her to assume that having authored a book like this might put her ability to stay with her children in jeopardy. She was often asked, quote, how I, then a young girl, came to think of and to dilate upon so very hideous an idea. She nearly seemed to remove her own ability from the equation by describing the story as having come to her in a dream and she was, quote, making only a transcript. Mary Shelley herself wrote, I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident nor scarcely of one train of feeling to my husband. And yet, but for his incitement, it would never have taken the form in which it was presented to the world. I would like to note here that Frankenstein is not a perfect book. It shows a lot of Mary Shelley's own ability at the time of its writing. It bounces between viewpoints pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, various different editions of it have been edited and re-edited for punctuation and whatnot. But that did not stop it from being an absolute sensation mm-hmm. from the moment it was put into the world. Because it is. Uh, Mary Shelley's writing in this book reveals the lengths that she went to direct the reader's sympathy to the unnamed creation. Despite what every modern interpretation from the Halloween store tells you. There are countless realities to compare Frankenstein to. But one in particular reveals an interesting part of the author's life. It's possible that the novel is referencing, in whole or in part, the revolution that was happening in Haiti at the time. To quote Jill Lepore again, Godwin and Wollstonecraft, Mary's parents, had been abolitionists, as were both Percy and Mary Shelley, who, for instance, refused to eat sugar because of how it was produced. There are many discussions about whether Frankenstein's creation is meant to have specifically black features or if future productions brought that more strongly into the tale to make political statements or be downright racist. Recently, the MIT Press published a new edition of Frankenstein, quote, annotated for scientists, engineers, and creators of all kinds. One footnote reads, The remorse Victor expresses is reminiscent of J. Robert Oppenheimer's sentiments when he witnessed the unspeakable power of the atomic bomb. Scientists' responsibility must be engaged before their creations are unleashed. Including all other themes, I've always seen Frankenstein as inseparable from the mother who wrote the piece, and the horrible tragedy that surrounded her life and her attempts to bring life into the world. She lived very uniquely, defying many of the current sexual and social norms of her day. And today, there's still a bit of controversy surrounding her sexuality. To quote Fern Riddle, writing for The Guardian, 
Writing to her close friend, Edward Trelawney, in 1835, Shelley recalled the years of loneliness and longing that followed Percy's death, saying, I was so ready to give myself away, and being afraid of men, I was apt to get towsy-mousy for women. Jonathan Green, one of our most important historical lexographers, was able to tell me that Tuzzy Muzzy, <laughs> as slang for the vagina, dates back to 1642. There are also stories of Shelley having a love affair with Jane Williams not long after Percy's death. She was also instrumental in procuring fake passports for two friends, Isabel Robinson and Mary Diana Dodds, to flee to Paris and live there disguised as man and wife. End quote. I cannot help but laugh at Victorian slang. Oh, it's <laughs> hilarious. But I- I'm just struck at what a powerhouse this woman was. Yes, and it's very interesting that she got the fake passports so that one woman could travel as a man because it was not uncommon during that time for two women to travel together. No, it's pretty clear what that was for. I mean, yeah, yeah, two women traveling together was absolutely normal, but they, they, they didn't want to be just, it seems like, two women traveling together. Maybe the one person didn't even identify as a woman. Exactly. Either way, no matter what's going on, all of the amazing things she's ever done, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley is credited as the founder of the modern horror genre. And with her book, The Last Man, she is the author of the first apocalyptic story written in English. Having quite a lot of feelings about Mary Shelley and her writing, I actually wrote my story before going back to do the research to make my hodgepodge of knowledge more accessible. (laughs) And I realized that the background of this woman was absolutely necessary to understand why I chose to write about the horrors within her real life, rather than retelling her monster tale. Uh, Still, before I begin my own story, here is a quote from Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, that will give you a bit of the genre tale and some insight into her personal thinking. Why did I not die? More miserable than man ever was before, why did I not sink into forgetfulness and rest? Death snatches away many blooming children, the only hopes of their doting parents. How many brides and youthful lovers have been one day in the bloom of health and hope and the next a prey for worms and the decay of the tomb. Of what materials was I made that I could thus resist so many shocks, which, like the turning of the wheel, continually renewed the torture? But I was doomed to live. All right. From the Diary of Mary Shelley, 1833. My daughter... I want to tell you something about the nature of the world. It's something that no man will ever explain. This lesson was not passed down to me by my mother as she passed due to my birth. And 
I hadn't the time to pass it on to you, as my fear of how I might damage your life with my lack of ability brought you into this world too weak even to live. I am the mother of a gruesome monster. I have written into reality my own fear and nurtured it into the good fortune upon which I live. But I want you to understand something about horror. The monsters you ought to fear are not the shambling stitchings of rotting corpses animated. No, sweet girl, you will find it in the teasing of your friends. The simplest light-hearted mockery that cuts at you like a page passing between your fingers. It's the daily cruelties bred into your very being by propriety and expectation until inflicting terrible anguish feels like the slightly sweet mundanity of sipping your morning tea. You'll know its face in the fallacy of your idols, in your own misplaced loving and the way delicate passion can turn into bitter scorn. You will never be able to condemn those people, parents, lovers, or friends for their monstrosity because the greatest horror of it all, the trick ending even I or Shelley or Byron could not write, is that you will become just the same. I do not mean to frighten you, as this is only the natural order of things, but I dearly wish someone had told me before I found out on my own. I want you to have some knowledge that no man can touch. They will try their utmost to take this away from you, any secret thing once they know that you have it. Not even understanding what they seek, men will try to pry you apart, to gut out what they believe you hide. Do not let these beasts of wild passion take what is only yours. I would wish children for you. Perhaps I might have been a perfect mother, and you would see my faults and the places I've stitched myself up, but you would understand as only a living child can understand. It sounds lovely for us, but now I've cast those flights of fancy aside. Still, I like to imagine that by the time you bring little ones into this world, my horror might be bred out, and you would have grasped the trick of bringing people into this world wholly. Your father, your husband, and every man you meet will try to convince you that they are the creators of the world and that you are lost in the darkness without their lamplight. This is simply not true. You can make a beautiful life for yourself, a child even, that you can hold in your very hands. You are at the heart of the making of the world and do not let them tell you otherwise because of their fear. <laughs> let them flash their electricity and cry, I am a god among men. Let them have... <sighs> their dreams. <laughs> Joys are brief and hard to come by. Creation is brutal, 
And if they believe that they can walk away unscathed from their manifestation, well, that is simply not true. Anything born can just as easily die, no matter anyone's protestations. And what lives on, no matter how perfect, will hang like a yoke around your neck so that you will bear the faults of your craft into the annals of history. Anonymity is even more cruel still, for living your life blameless is living a life with no agency. Do not, not once, not ever allow someone to take away a choice in offer of your safety. You will find out only too late that there is no such thing in this entire world that will protect you from your own wanting for more. I dreamed, years ago, that your father and I brought you in a bundle by the fire, and I warmed you into living again. You had cheeks like apples and hands that would not stop grasping. You never looked at me, not once. Your bright, beautiful eyes blinked up at everything as if you knew you only had a moment and you had to see it all at once. I have always believed you found some great wisdom in that stolen time in my arms, and that if you would just turn your gaze upon me, I would catch that spark in your eyes. There is nothing left of you in me. I will never know how much of me might have reflected in you. <laughs> I imagine you still happy, the most beautiful creation I ever made. I will tear out every final page the people bind with you, and meet you again each time I am able. Life's accumulation of anguish is worth trudging through, I promise. I'm sorry I scared you off when I did not know better. All my love is yours, your mum. I don't know how you have just mastered the art of putting such intense very personal seeming emotion into all your stories like I would think that you were a, you have been a mother and we're writing from that personal experience that was, uh, that was so beautiful I can't even Thank like I'll you. need to go back and listen to that like a hundred times to take in all of the tiny details you threw in because it's just it's powerful it's emotional it's sad it's brave oh my god that was beautiful my favorite part about Frankenstein and Mary Shelley, if I haven't said it enough, is the idea that this woman who kept trying to be a mother and have children created a story in which a man tries to create something and it is a perversion mm -hmm. of of his dreams and I've read and it's it's reiterated in that uh, New Yorker article but Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley 
kept all of those names. Uh, her parents were not married at the time of her conception. They only married to legitimize her existence. And mm. then she added Shelley to her name, but she, you know, insisted upon keeping her mother's name in there. She has this life that she kept trying to stitch together. And comparing that to this well-spoken, well-read, virtuous, uh, innocent monster is I mean, is the very whole moving. point of the story is that the creature just wants to connect with humanity and he gets so close and then people see who he is and what he is and they run in fear and, and attack him but he is not inherently this evil creature at all no and i wonder what her life must have been like to go from this very unique upbringing with a stepmother in this this bookstore that was sort of a, a mecca of culture and then eloping against her family's wishes and to be thrown into a world with a man who had a lot of money and yet had to run from creditors and yeah. travel all over Europe and, you know, spend time with, by all accounts, a very debaucherous sort of a crowd. Mm-hmm. I I wonder how that felt to her being such a young woman or just a human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh so yeah, my story I wrote as Mary Shelley which even now feels like a, a really ballsy choice for me because there are so many quotes from actual Mary Shelley. I did not want to retell you Frankenstein because you all can access Frankenstein for free online. It's at Project Gutenberg. We have the link in our recommendations page for you. Read it. <laughs> I like your choice. I like the idea of of jumping into her own head and telling a story that way. Um, it's just something you do beautifully, so I love when you do that. You're fearless in writing in a way that I think reflects well with Mary Shelley's life and writing style. Thank you. I uh, Every time we have a straightforward story where I could tell people what happened, I instead just want to tell them what they're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no facts for you. Um, I do, though, want to quickly revisit Mary Shelley's own words. The only phrase that I quoted directly from her in my letter is accumulation of anguish. It comes from her quote, Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me and I will defend it. Which I've always found particularly mm, heartfelt. Um, Well, and it's powerful. It's... I don't know. It's a survivor's mentality. It's a strength mentality. It's, it just speaks to her wanting to experience everything. I think that's something that just feels like it would be a mindset that she has based on her adventurous, bold spirit that mm-hmm. it's worth experiencing everything, including the bad things. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and there are two Frankenstein quotes that I uh, used as reference when writing her letter. 
I do know that for the sympathy of one living being, I would make peace with it all. I have love in me the likes of which you can scarcely imagine, and rage the likes of which you would not believe. If I cannot satisfy the one, I will indulge the other. And beware, for I am fearless, and therefore powerful. Which you can just tattoo on my forehead right now. (laughs) Despite the fact that a massive collection of Mary's personal writings and diaries exists, there is still debate about many of the truths of her life. Some sources will say she never named her first baby before she passed. Others will say the little girl like her later sister, who also passed, was named Clara. Like many of the world's great people, I am sure her larger-than-life legacy has something to do with that, but even the everyday person exists very much between various truths people might tell you about them. And finally, to quote Mary herself one last time, My dreams were all my own. I accounted for them to nobody. They were my refuge when annoyed, my dearest pleasure when free. And that is Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley and Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. I mean, just an incredible woman. Mother, mother of the horror genre, truly. If I could go back and meet two figures in history, it would be Mary Shelley and Dorothy Parker and the rest be damned. (laughs) You love a good, (laughs) bold woman. Yeah, I really do. (laughs) I really do. I want those ladies that are also in very controversial groups. Yes. Both of those women just... Yeah. (laughs) Anyway... Mary Shelley, the founding of the modern horror genre. What have you for me? (laughs) So we're going to take it forward a few years and talk about H.P. Lovecraft. Hold on, we need to talk about this. Time. When you say take it forward a few years, I imagine you actually going further back into the past. And I meant go into the future. I watched a video, not on TikTok, about... How that says something about how you perceive time. Yeah, it's if and your place you're in the fixed world. and time moves through you or you're moving through time. I think I'm fixed. And I think I'm moving through time. All right. Sorry. Lovecraft, okay. bring it. We're going to take it into the future from your story and talk about H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft. So I'm going to start with a quote. The most merciful thing in the world, I think is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. H.P. Lovecraft. Wow. (laughs) 
So I don't know about you, but when I think of H.P. Lovecraft, I think of outer gods, cryptic monsters, unknowable truths, confusing geography, all sorts of fear of the unknown and the cryptic that's, to me, integral to the works of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. I wish I wasn't about to fess this up, but I actually think of very little when people talk about Lovecraft because I unfortunately also learned about his personal life before I was introduced Mm. to his stories and thus did not explore further. (laughs) You probably know more about his mythos than you even realize because it's become so ubiquitous in concept. So if you know anything about Cthulhu... Lovecraft. Right, especially in the D&D community. Lovecraft Absolutely. is in Huge. so many My, things. The, one of the campaigns I'm in is Lovecraft-based. I'm sorry, one of them? Uh, the campaign we are both in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the one that we are both in. So, Howard Phillips Lovecraft was a literary genius who is the epitome of separating the work from the writer. Honestly, the only way to really enjoy Lovecraft's work is to understand but separate it from his, even for his own time, extremely racist views. H.P. Lovecraft created an enduring mythos that is still being built upon today, but it's important to understand the man behind the mythos to truly get the whole picture. Before I jump into his life story, I want to let you know there is no way to cover even a fraction of his mythos in a single podcast episode. So we will definitely be diving into this rich tapestry of madness more than once. Also, most of the research that I got about his life comes from the H.P. Lovecraft website biography section, which does tame some of his more problematic aspects a little bit. So I um, will dive into those further. So don't feel like I'm not going to cover that. That was actually a problem when I was researching as well. When I was looking up Mary Shelley, people were uh, making her life sound very vanilla. And I had to just keep looking for more accurate sources. Yeah, people have gotten so much better with Lovecraft, especially lately. Uh, I would say in the last 10 years, really, people have gotten really honest about who he is. But I think for a long time, there was a fear that if you were real about who he was and what he believed, you would have to no longer like what he did. And we'll dig into that more, but I personally don't feel that's the case in this particular scenario. But for now, Rowan, let us go back in time to the year 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. It's 9 a.m. on a warm, late summer day, and at 194 Angle Street, Sarah Susan Phillips Lovecraft gives birth to a baby boy. H.P. Lovecraft was born on August 20th, one day after my own birthday, uh, in 1890 at his home in Providence, Rhode Island. His life would not be an easy nor a stress-free one, but it would result in an incredible series of stories that are still loved by fans across the world to this day. When he was eight years old, H.P. Lovecraft's father died of what was most likely a form of neurosyphilis. It was then that his mother, two aunts, and his grandfather took over his upbringing. Quick question. Two mm-hmm. aunts, like two aunts that were related to his, his mother, mother or sisters? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, less exciting. <laughs> From an early age, Lovecraft showed extreme interest in books and literature. By age two, he was reciting poetry. By three, he was reading. 
and by age six or seven, he was already writing. Early on in his life, he developed a passion for the Arabian Nights, which led him to create a pseudonym of Abdul Al-Hazred, who he later used as the author for the famed Necronomicon. His next love was Greek mythology, and at only seven years old, he wrote his oldest surviving work, which was an 88-line paraphrase of the Odyssey, written with an internal rhyming verse. <laughs> seven years old. That stresses me out. I Just know. thinking about that. <sighs> you have to be a young prodigy getting your work out before... 21 to be a founder of horror, apparently. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So psychological illnesses made his attendance at public school sporadic, but that didn't stop Lovecraft from continuing to pursue his love of reading. He wrote about science. He told, quote, off-the-cuff stories that were told to him by his grandfather, and he especially loved astronomy. Eventually, he wrote astronomy columns for the Providence Sunday Journal, Providence Tribune, the Providence Evening News, and other newspapers. Things took a difficult turn for Lovecraft after his grandfather passed away in 1904 and left his family in financial ruin. They had to move out of his childhood home and into a cramped, smaller space. He was severely depressed during this time and took to taking long, melancholy bike rides by the Barrington River. A nervous breakdown just before his high school graduation caused him to fail out of school and therefore lose his chance to attend university. This was a source of great shame for both him and his family for years to come. Things just get a little darker from here. Lovecraft essentially became a hermit from 1908 to 1913 and focused almost exclusively on two things. His astronomy articles and his mother. Quote, During this whole period, Lovecraft was thrown into an unhealthily close relationship with his mother, who was still suffering from the trauma of her husband's illness and death, and who developed a pathological love-hate relationship with her son. End quote. On May 24, 1921, H.P. Lovecraft's mother would pass away after a years-long stay at the Butler Hospital for mental illness. Her cause of death was the result of a botched gallbladder operation. Oh, that must be such a horrible way to suffer. And just the years-long mental illness was hard on everyone in her family. So this really, this messed him up. Do we know what she suffered from, specifically? No. No, um, my best guess is... Anxiety and possibly some kind of, I I don't know, I don't want to label, I mean, definitely anxiety just based on, I mean, anxiety and depression based on what was talked about and also what Lovecraft himself inherited and experienced. Honestly, if this whole story just turned to you telling me the story of a serial killer, like John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy or something, I would just go, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, understandable. Doesn't go that direction, (laughs) at least for him. It was a few weeks after his mother's death that Lovecraft would meet the woman who would become his wife. Sonia Haft-Green, who was Russian, Jewish, and seven years his senior. The two met at an amateur journalism convention in Boston. 
Three years after they met, the two would marry and move into Sonia's apartment in Brooklyn. Almost immediately, a string of troubles hit the newlyweds. Sonia's hat shop, which was the couple's only source of income, went bankrupt. She fell ill and had to stay at the New Jersey Sanitarium, and Lovecraft was unable to secure work. In 1925, Sonia left to take a job in Cleveland, leaving Lovecraft behind in a small apartment in a seedy neighborhood. Already wary of anyone who wasn't white and from New England, Lovecraft quickly began to spiral downward. He became increasingly depressed by his isolation and the masses of, quote, foreigners in the city of whom he was becoming more and more afraid. He spoke and wrote often about his distrust of the people of New York and how he longed for his hometown. His fiction turned from the nostalgic to the bleak and misanthropic. Finally, in early 1926, plans were made for Lovecraft to return to Providence, the place he missed so dearly. Except, his aunts had one rule. The stigma of his tradeswoman wife could not taint the family name any further, and she was not allowed to return with him. Despite his protests of his affection towards her, he acquiesced, and the couple divorced in 1929. H.P. Lovecraft spent the next ten years writing, traveling the New England countryside, even sometimes venturing as far as Philadelphia. Ooh, shocking. (laughs) He claimed it was that he was really exploring his roots, but he had long since established that New England was the only place he felt comfortable. It was during this time that he wrote some of his most prolific stories, such as The Call of Cthulhu, The Shadow Out of Time, and At the Mountains of Madness. The last two or three years of his life were filled with loss and hardship. His two aunts passed away, as well as a close friend and writer, Robert E. Howard, It was by this time that the intestinal cancer that would cause his death had already spread and could no longer be treated. He passed away at Jane Brown Memorial Hospital on March 15, 1937. Two of his friends, August Derleth and Donald Wandry, were determined to preserve Lovecraft's stories and formed the publishing firm of Arkham House. Initially, it was created to publish Lovecraft's work. They issued The Outsider and Others in 1939. Many other volumes followed from Arkham House, and eventually Lovecraft's work became available in paperback and was translated into a dozen languages and are still read by fans of his stories to this day. Is Arkham House where Batman gets the reference to Arkham from for Arkham Asylum? Yep. And did Lovecraft... Did his racism not extend to his Jewish former wife? That was what I I included that because it was so weird. It didn't, but I think that was like, I like her because he, he loved Hitler. He had horrible thoughts about Jewish people. So, and, and his wife was a strong woman. She was the sole breadwinner of their family. I mean, before he even was in the picture. So I think it was that classic thing of hate the concept, love a person. Yeah, I'm just so glad she got to walk away safe and healthy from that relationship. (laughs) Me too. So speaking of racism, so much of what inspires us about Lovecraft stories is the extremely human curiosity and fear of the unknown. 
He takes his characters up to and often past the brink of the knowable world and catapults them, typically to their mental detriment, into the incomprehensible. It's extremely compelling to dive into the world of myths and monsters that he creates because it is so foreign and frightening. Except, we have to keep in mind that while they are just myths and monsters to us reading it today, to Lovecraft, they were very real analogies for people of color and expressions of his extreme racism. At times, you could say that unknowable monster hunting the hero was just a direct analogy for a black person in America interacting with a white person. If someone wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon man from New England, then they were automatically inferior in his mind. His blatant misogyny, xenophobia, and racism came back into public attention in 2010. The World Fantasy Award, which is a prestigious literary prize for fiction, gave out a statue of Lovecraft himself. Intended originally to acknowledge his precedent in the field of fantastical fiction. However, as Nettie Okafor, the first black person to win the prize, stated, A statue of this racist man's head is in my home. A statuette of this racist man's head is one of my greatest honors as a writer. The award was remodeled in 2016. I'll link to an article on LitHub that goes into further detail about this award and the controversy surrounding it. Uh, and it talks about H.P. Lovecraft's enduring legacy and how his past conflicts with that. It's an incredible article. There's one last point I want to bring up, though. Fans of H.P. Lovecraft who feel the need to defend the man that Stephen King himself called horror stories, dark and baroque prince, can sometimes be more focused on covering up the reality of Lovecraft's beliefs than recognizing the man as he really was. His legacy is enduring, and we can appreciate how widespread his work has become, but we cannot, in my opinion, allow that to overshadow the beliefs that he held and the impact it had in his time and it continues to have to this day. There was a very meaningful and interesting conversation to be had around Lovecraft's beliefs and how it translates into his cosmic horror. But we can't have that conversation without acknowledging the author for who he really was and the origins of his work. With that said, it was his fears of what he perceived to be the other that led to his creation of a cosmic horror genre that takes what is known and transforms it into the unknowable. His stories involve characters who encounter unknown entities, dreamscapes, cities with architecture that cannot be known to human imaginations, monstrous perversions of geometric laws, and sights of the grotesque, sinister, and bizarre. His stories leave the readers with the feeling that the world has been fundamentally shifted and cannot be returned to the comforting status quo once known to them. To quote LitHub, There is no hero in these tales. There are but two options his characters are thus faced with. Go mad or run. So for my story this week, I tried and tried and tried to come up with a way to cre recreate a story from his mythos, which is commonly called the Cthulhu mythos, but he himself called yogg satothri <laughs> I didn't know that, actually. I didn't <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's online today. You'll see it's Cthulhu Mythos, but it really he called it Yogsatothery. Uh, Yogsatoth being a character. Why is it that every episode we think is going to be super easy is really hard, and then every episode we think is going to be so hard is the simplest? I know. Because uh, we're fools. <laughs> <laughs> fools, I tell you. Tim Black, who you will all remember from our Whiskey and Fable episodes, is a huge fan of Lovecraft's work and has taught me so... To put so, it mildly. To put it mildly. He has taught me so much about the mythos as well as really he has taught me before my research everything I knew about the flaws of Lovecraft. He's very realistic about who Lovecraft was. So I was struggling and struggling and struggling to find a way to capture the feeling of a Lovecraft story in a new way. And so I kept coming back to this story that Tim wrote a while ago. Finally, after reading his story for inspiration for the hundredth time, I realized I have an incredible story written in front of me. A story written by someone who knows, loves, and understands the Lovecraft mythos. A story by someone who recognizes the flaws of the author and always strives to learn and grow through his own writing. A story by an author I personally respect very deeply. So this week, I won't be reading you a story that I wrote myself. I will be reading you a short story called A Gift and a Show by Tim Black. Mm. I always had an affinity for the weird things in life. Nothing too far out of the ordinary. Cryptids, chaos magic, the Kabbalah, harmless stuff. Ritual and speculation. It was my thing among my friends. I was the spooky one. The one who was always ready with some obscure Aleister Crowley reference or walking them through some morbid myth over drinks. It was fun for me, and I liked that quirky little niche that I occupied. All of my friends were a little odd in some way, but that corner of the bazaar was mine. I was happy. I never really went looking for any of that stuff, of course. I didn't really believe. It was just a hobby. Some esoteric nonsense to amuse my friends and confuse my Bible-thumping parents. Then my birthday came around. This was a time when I was stuck at home a lot. I was between jobs, with not much to do but read and watch horror films and wait for something to happen. My family and friends brought or sent presents of the usual kinds of things I favored. Whiskey, video games, absurd graphic t-shirts and the like, but the day after I received a new package. A slim, manila envelope addressed to me personally. Its packaging was unremarkable in every way, with one notable exception. No matter how long I stared, brows furrowed, eyes squinting, I couldn't make out the return address. The words were English, of that I'm absolutely certain, and they weren't nonsense. They were definitely words. I just couldn't understand them. The stamp I clearly remember. It was a simple gray lily set against a black background. It was both utterly unremarkable and endlessly perplexing. I opened the package, of course. How could I not? Curiosity has always been one of my strongest vices, and this was too weird for me not to dig in deeper. Inside there was a single piece of hard paper. More like a postcard than anything else. One side of it was glossy black, 
and completely unmarked. The other side had an address and what I can only describe as some theatrical billing. I won't put the address into writing. I don't want anyone else to experience what I went through, no matter what their level of morbid intrigue. It was an invitation. The show was titled The Audient Void, starring one Nathan Hopper as the main presenter. The sole caption detailing the performance was, For fans of the weird, the macabre, and the world behind the world. At the time, I had of course assumed this was something like an escape room or one of those find-the-serial-killer augmented reality games you hear advertised on podcasts all the time. I was convinced it was something that one of my friends had paid for as a birthday present. I sent a text to a group chat asking who sent it, but none of my friends owned up to it. I was half convinced at the time that one or more of them was well aware of the package and was just playing dumb until after I'd seen the show. Then they would bombard me with questions and jokes about my peculiar affinity for the odd. So I went. Of course I went. The venue was close enough to my apartment that I could attend the show and even meet with my friends for drinks afterwards. The location was respectable enough. I live in an older part of the city and the theater where the performance was held was one of those dignified but antiquated sort of places. I won't give any more details for the same reason I won't disclose its address, but it looked as benign as anything else in its neighborhood. The theater itself was packed. I was struck by how diverse my fellow spectators were. Some were clearly from my sort of crowd with artfully dyed or cropped haircuts and clothing that screamed, look how different I am, but others seemed like they would have been more at home in a Bible study group or a police academy or a retirement home. They all wore the same expression, though. They, like me, were intrigued by what was to come, but were equally befuddled by the medley of their fellow theatergoers. Then the lights flashed briefly and dimmed. Silence fell over the crowd, and our host for the evening took the stage. What I remember most about Nathan Hopper is how utterly unremarkable he was. He wasn't tall or short. He wasn't fat or thin. He was far from ugly, but equally distant from handsome. <sighs> I had a hard time discerning if he even leaned more masculine or feminine. Not that that last bit matters to me, especially now. He smiled. I remember him smiling, and he began to speak. And then the world broke. It was such a quiet thing at first. A creeping sense of wrongness that pervaded the air. Do you know that feeling you get when you overestimate the length of a staircase and your stomach jolts as you try to climb that last phantom step? It was that except it lasted. Time began to lose meaning, and it occurred to me that time never had meaning. The concept of time being relative and therefore valueless was always something I'd regarded cognitively as, you know, a thought exercise in metaphysics, but this time I felt it. The theater grew darker. I could still see Nathan Hopper cheerily speaking in words that I can't remember, but his face was the only one I could make out anymore. As the last vestiges of light left the auditorium, I glanced to my right, 
and my left seeking some small reassurance of reality in my fellow spectators. I couldn't see their faces. I'm not even sure if they had faces now. I still can't really see faces. Then I was falling. I was alone and I was falling. Darkness encircled me, but it didn't smother me. I wasn't drowning or suffocating. It didn't bury me in the way that you might think. If anything, it was opening to me. I felt it yawning, the space growing ever larger. For a moment, I saw stars. Not in the sense that I was concussed or dizzied. No, I saw the stars. They were beautiful, surrounding me in my endless black void. They reassured me somehow, even in that widening nothingness. And then they started to die. One by one, the stars winked out. I swiveled my head desperately, desperately searching for those precious little lights that let me cling to my sense of stealth. But it was in vain. As the last of the stars faded to darkness, I became aware of a presence. I couldn't see it, of course, as the sense of endless vertigo didn't abate in the slightest. But somehow I perceived it. It wasn't aware of me. Of that I'm still certain, but I had... I had no choice but to be aware of it. It roiled and thrashed in that darkness. It piped and groaned in the abyss between the corpses of the stars. It didn't know me. It didn't want me. It couldn't know, and it couldn't want. It rolled in an endless tide of mindless, omnipotent apathy. I was nothing to it. I was nothing to anything. And in that moment, I understood. He made me understand. Not the coiling mass of power and idiocy that now surrounded me in the darkness, but its messenger. Its herald. The one who brought me here. I understood, and I knew. And I was broken by it all. Then I was back in the theater. I can't say for certain how much time had passed. Maybe it had been a few minutes. Maybe a year. I cast my gaze into the crowd around me. Some of the theater-goers were weeping, rocking back and forth with their knees clutched to their chests. A few had become violent, scratching and clawing and beating those who occupied the seats next to them. More were catatonic, their eyes empty and vacant. And I knew in that moment they would never awaken again. I think a good number were dead. Then, at last, I looked back to the stage, to the thing that had called himself Nathan Hopper. But I knew it now, and he knew that I knew. Gone was the utterly unremarkable man. Gone was any vestige or pretense of humanity. I had seen the audience void, and now I could see him. His eyes met mine, and they were black, empty, and uncaring, 
and as mocking as the horror I had just emerged from. So too was his skin. Not the dark brown of an African heritage, but the perfect onyx of the space between the stars. Nyarlathotep smiled, and my eyes burned from the freezing fire that lit his face. It hurt. Nyarlathotep laughed, and his mirth was a migraine that tore through my skull. It hurt. Nyarlathotep spoke, and his words were chiseled into my soul. It hurt. I won't repeat what he said to me. No one should have to hear those words. I commit this experience to writing as a warning to others. If you received an invitation to Nathan Hopper's show, don't go. Burn the invitation, scatter the ashes, and drink yourself into such a stupor that you never remember plucking it out of your mailbox. Don't give yourself over to the games of that vicious thing and the blind, idiot god that he serves. It's too late for me. It's too late. I will never, ever be free of his eyes, his smile, his laughter. I will carry it with me until the day I die because I have seen the audience void. I could imagine that story being a part of the Magnus Archives. Yeah. The, the, the universe of the Magnus Archives, like, plucked out of the archives themselves. Yeah. I, I first read that when Tim wrote it. I think, God, it must have been, like, a year ago. And I just have, it's stuck with me ever since. I've loved it. I didn't know anything about Lovecraft or Nyarlathotep at the time. So it was really cool to revisit it, knowing the expanse of the mythos. But what I loved most about his story is you don't need to know anything in order to appreciate it. Yeah. It's so interesting to me every time I encounter Lovecraft, so much of what is horrifying about Lovecraft stories is what is unknown. Yes. And I personally think what is known is much scarier. It's his stories are a combination of the unknown, but it's really it's it's that. It's actually knowing is the worst possible case scenario in pretty much all of his stories. The truth, the right, realization. Right, yeah, once you know, you can never unknow and you're scarred forever. Mm-hmm. I'd still rather know. I think I, I get it, but I've never found his stories scary, if that makes yeah. sense. You know, the stories that you read at night and you're like, oh no, yeah. I shouldn't have done this to myself. I could read Lovecraft all into the wee hours it's fun because you can have really you can have such cool conversations about what it, his stories mean. You know, it's not straightforward. Right. I think that's what I find. I agree. I don't find it particularly frightening, but I find it fascinating. I think we've said this before, but just in case we haven't, the D&D campaign that Tracy and I are in that is Lovecraftian is run by Tim and Nyarlathotep is a character yes. in it. So in that story, Tim calls him Lot, which he did because um, the character was introduced without us knowing who he really was. So I know mm-hmm. a lot of people say Nyarlathotep, but um, as I mentioned last episode, given it's clearly Egyptian origins, I will pronounce it Nyarlathotep, and that's a hill I'll die on. Uh, but a lot of fans of Lovecraft will call him Gnarly, so... Nyarlathotep, <laughs> Nyarlathotep, gnarly, lot, whatever floats your boat. It'll always be lot to me. Yes. <laughs> so to quote the Lovecraft wiki on this character, 
Most outer gods use strange alien languages, while Nyarlathotep uses human languages and can easily pass for human if he chooses to do so. Finally, most of them are all-powerful, yet evidently without clear purpose or agenda. Yet Nyarlathotep seems to be deliberately deceptive and manipulative, and even uses propaganda to achieve his goals. In this regard, he is probably the most human-like among the outer gods. Nyarlathotep enacts the will of the outer gods and is their messenger, heart and soul. Unlike the other outer gods, spreading madness is more important and enjoyable than death and destruction to Nyarlathotep. End quote. So Rowan, now that we've talked about Nyarlathotep, we've talked about Lovecraft's life, we've told a story, there is one mm-hmm. last thing I want to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. HBO created a new show yes! called Lovecraft Country. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I've only seen one episode, so no spoilers, please. Uh, But according to Tim, who adores Lovecraft's work uh, and is further into the show than I am, it's very enjoyable. Based on Matt Ruff's novel of the same name and created by Misha Green and Jordan Peele, the show takes place in 1950s America. The best part? It features a majority black cast. There is something incredibly poetic about Lovecraft's work being used to create a show which highlights and focuses on the Black experience in America, all without shying away from acknowledging the challenge of separating the art from the artist. So, cheers to you, Lovecraft Country. There are links in the show notes for articles that dig into this further, and I highly recommend checking them out. I love imagining that man rolling around in his grave right. when that beautifully produced show is on. I actually pulled some information about it as well because I wasn't sure if you were going to talk about it because we've never mm-hmm. talked about that show. And I can't stop thinking about it. So I also pulled a little bit of research about it because I'm really excited that it exists. Well, um, I mean, absolutely. And you're you're so in the Hollywood space that it's definitely it, it it's I don't know. I think it probably hits different for you than it does for me as just a person who watches it. You know, you see what this means for Hollywood in a way that I can't. There's this interview with the cast on YouTube that I put in our show notes as well. And they talk about the fact that this show is centering black voices in the sci-fi and horror genres, which, I mean, name the first blockbuster sci-fi and horror films that come to mind, and they're probably majority white casts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's really exciting as far as our industry, my industry, sorry, goes. Uh, There was a piece by Frankie Gilmore for Discussing Film, and he talked about an idea that is even part of HBO's own description of the series. Uh, But to quote Gilmore, even with scenes literally featuring Cthulhu and other horrifying cosmic creatures attacking our protagonists, it's the moments where people act evil in ways towards others that provide the true horror of the show. That is how I feel about horror as a whole. Mm-hmm. People are always worse than monsters and the fact that they are really getting to the har- the heart of 
Lovecraft's own monstrousness is just... Yes, it's beautiful. You can imagine him rolling in his grave, too. Misha Green said another thing about the show that really gets me so excited about her as a TV and filmmaker. Uh, She said, quote, How we move forward is acknowledging that celebrating the good stuff taking the good stuff and then building on the good stuff. That was exciting to me and why I had no problem doing it because it was like moving forward. I could not recommend the YouTube video that is in our show notes highly enough. This cast, it's all heavy hitters left and right. Yeah, and it's creating a new legacy for his work, which I love. I think so much about the artist versus the art yeah uh especially being in hollywood during the me too movement kind of the place that i draw the line is is the artist from a bygone era and long dead and will make no money from this yes i am as an individual more than happy to find ways to take what I like and leave the rest from their work is my consumption of a living person's work going to fund them being a terrible person I'm not going to do that (laughs) yep I completely 100% agree I uh there are even some recently deceased artists who I still I cannot go there but as far as Lovecraft is I hope people just continue to take what they like and leave the rest and make it shiny and new. Yes. So you told me a story today. I told you a story today. I think it's time to talk about a story from one of our listeners. Mm Hmm. Okay. So the way that Emily sent in the story is that she wrote down a transcript of a conversation she had with her father And that is the story we'll be reading to you today. So I will be reading the part of Emily, and Rowan will be reading the part of Kurt, Emily's father. I can't believe we have a full-on listener legend script. It's incredible. I love, (laughs) I love this. All right. All right. So I have started a recording. This is with Kurt Johnson, my father, on September the 21st. 2020. When I was younger, the neighborhood kids would congregate in our house, mostly because we had an Atari 2600, 1978. Every once in a while, there would be a lot of kids there, and we'd decide to pull out the Ouija board. Most of the times we'd done Ouija board, we were faking around with it. That's what it seemed like it was on this day as well. Most of the time, it was the older kids that were doing it, and they were thinking very strange things, like talking to people that were dead and stuff like that. The answers were usually very simple, yes or no kinds of answers. This one particular time, it was me and a bunch of very young kids who got on the board. It was toward the end of our time together. Were they younger than you? They were much younger than me. I don't remember who they were, but... They were probably, like, first or second grade. They were young. Were you, like, fourth or fifth grade? Yeah. We would always have somebody writing down the words as we were going through it. The kids playing this time were kind of like 
the kids to be picked last and we were having fun. The Ouija board thing kind of, it just was like people were saying it, everyone's faking it, you know? It was like that kind of thing. Yeah. So we're kind of placating the youngest kids who have been wanting to try this the whole time. It got quiet and the planchet started moving pretty fast. The words, it was clearly spelling something out. The responses were coming very, very fast. I'm trying to think of all the questions, but it was like we were really communicating with something at that point. I started getting freaked out, but I wanted the little kids to have a turn. It's sort of my nature to try to help everybody. So we're flying through this thing and the words were going faster and faster. Then somebody asked the question, who are you? The letters started coming out like this. The first letter was I, and I thought it was going to be I am, but it wasn't I am. The next letter was an S, and the next letter was an E, and I'm like, E's? That doesn't make sense. Maybe it's some kind of different language or something, and, and then the next letter is T, so I'm like, Ist? That's weird. And the next letter was a Y. I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. It was going faster and faster, like we could barely even keep up with it. As soon as somebody shouted out the letter that it stopped on, it would just move on. It was that quick. The next letter was an O and then a U. Someone said that's not a word. That's three words. It wasn't really pausing very much. So it was, I set you. And I was like, I set you? This answers the question, who are you? Then the next letter was an F, the next letter an R, then the next letter was an E, and it just circled back to the E really quickly, E. And then I just got us to break the E, so it's, I set you free. We were like, what's going on here? This is really getting weird. I kept looking at the little kids because I thought that someone has to be doing this because the whole time it wasn't responding well and then all of the sudden it was like a switch had been turned on. The next letter was an F. Next letter was an R. The next letter was an O. And the next letter was an M. So I set you free from. By this time, it was almost like I wanted it to stop. (laughs) Someone was crazily writing down the letters as fast as they could, with everybody else now hunkered behind the person who was reading the letters out. Then it was an E, then a D, then an E, and an N. I set you free from Eden. At that point, we all jumped away from the board. We had to stop this. We were all in shock. At that point, the game was over. I don't think we ever did Ouija again. Did you close the board? We put it away. It's like a board game. You're supposed to close it! We didn't do anything. We were all freaked out. This was like a game we kept in with Monopoly. It was like a freaky thing to do once in a while. It was mostly people who were faking. This was the first time that that had happened, and then I'm thinking to myself, I know I didn't spell those words. All these other kids that can barely spell, there were probably five of us on the board. Yeah. Did you feel like in that moment, 
did you feel like an energy? Do you remember feeling energy in the room or did you just feel like it was like the board being creepy? It was everything all at once. It was hard to describe. Who was talking to us? I set you free from Eden. So that was the story that Emily sent in. Oh my goodness. What? Oh my goodness. So good. So spooky. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What? What could they have contacted? Oh my god. I set you free from Eden. When Emily was saying you're supposed to close it, does she mean you're supposed to say goodbye? I think so. I think you're like supposed to close to... the board. Right. Okay. I... I just want to know. I just want it to be like a phone where I can now take over decades later and say, all right, here we go. (laughs) Uh, So thank you so, so, so much, Emily, for sending sending that in. That was everything we could ever ask for and more. Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm still very deeply thinking about this. (laughs) I have quite the collection of Ouija boards, so I love a Ouija board story. Please send us more ghost stories. This is so lovely. It's such a gift, especially when you know people or they're in your community. It's great. And Emily told us that she wouldn't have thought to ask her her father about this. Uh, But Mm. she asked because she was interested to know if he had any stories for the podcast. And so thank you for doing that, Emily. This was I oh, my God, this is going to I'm probably going to have like nightmares about this. This was so good. I would really like to meet Emily's father now so that I can hear him tell it in his own (laughs) voice because this is my first time reading it. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who has written in Listener Legends, who is going to write into Listener Legends. (laughs) You can send them to us on uh, willingandfable at gmail.com on our website uh, through our submissions form. And if you're on our Discord, you can send us a message on Discord. You can send us an Instagram story, an Instagram, whatever you want. Anything, any way of contacting us. We'd love to hear it. Yes, and if you do send them in, please include the name you want us to call you and your pronouns, because otherwise you're going to be anonymous, which is fine. But if you don't want to be anonymous, we want to shout your name from the rooftops. So thank you so much. So we made it through an episode that was admittedly little down as far as yeah these people's lives go so uh tracy tell me something good (laughs) (laughs) can do so my something good for this week is about food um because food is one of my favorite things in this world along with coffee Food is love food is love and honestly so like baking to me is such a form of love and i adore baking so my something good this week is that it is now spooky season. Uh, my friends and I are, are planning to go apple picking. We haven't picked a date yet, but I'm very excited because one of my favorite things to make in the fall autumn time is homemade applesauce, which is Ooh. so easy. So I just take apples, cut them up, put them in a little bit of water, boil and simmer them for like 20 minutes. And then I have a thing called a Foley food mill which basically is a thing that you can like grind in a in a mill motion and it's got little holes at the bottom. So you don't need to peel the apples or anything. You just dump all the really mushy hot apples in it, mill them around over a bowl, put some cinnamon in there, and you have the best warm homemade applesauce. 
That's interesting. I think I mostly eat applesauce cold. I do too, but it's this homemade stuff. I I have to have warm. It's my. F- I'll eat it like boiling hot once I make it. <laughs> I. It's just, and I think it's because I grew up with it. It's something my mom makes, and it just is such a form of love to me. So, um, I love it. I made my first batch the other night. It was delicious. And then my request to all of the listeners is I will share my applesauce recipe in writing with you, but I want all of you to share your favorite fall recipes with me because I want to just go nuts baking this season. Also, please include some apple tarts in that uh, recipe exchange because that's my favorite. Kaylee, my friend, makes this amazing apple crumble every year Mm -hmm. for Thanksgiving. But frankly, that's too far away. And I need to try to convince her to make it. They have at their house the apple peeler that you spin in it, which is so fun. Yeah, I've never used that because I'm lazy. I bought a Foley food mill instead because it's not that expensive. I literally only use it to make applesauce. You can use it to make mashed potatoes. I have my own very particular way of doing that. But Tracy, you have your own very particular way of doing every single cooking thing. Yeah. That yeah, that's what happens when you grow up with an Italian mother who loves to cook and an Irish father who learned to love to cook. So my mom cooks from the heart and my dad cooks from a technical perspective because he's also a scientist. So that that kind of bled down into a weird blend of cooking and baking style for me. Your dad makes the best pancakes, though. I will stand by that. Yes, he does. All right, Rowan. Yeah. Tell me something good. My something good this week is that our first patron posted that they got our postcard. I am so excited, you guys. Getting the postcards made and sending them out was my my special mission. That project I, was Rowan's baby. I love, love stationery. I I get so excited ordering cards and very coolly uh, the back of the postcard, which is done in an antique style, it's all hand drawn by Jamie Harrison for us. It is mm-hmm. our own unique postcard style. Yes. I ordered spooky stamps that are holographic so everybody gets special shiny stamps. And frankly, I have so many postcards and I just want to send them out to everyone. <laughs> You can get your own postcard if you join our Patreon at $10 or more a month. Yes. If you become a mythic patron, you get a handwritten thank you card from me and Tracy. I mean, it's mostly from me, but Tracy does get a little bit involved. (laughs) And hey, listen, do you have a postcard that you want to send to a human? Let me... Write it for you with our willing and fable postcards. I'll stamp it. I just want to send mail. We're all trapped inside. Mail is like the best thing. (laughs) Anyway, you should check out our Patreon. At the first tier, you get a shout out on our show. You can get these handwritten postcards. We have a super secret Discord channel. We have custom art by Tracy, custom stories by me. and, And at the highest tier, you can choose an episode topic and we will make an entire episode in your honor. So head over to our Patreon. Um, <laughs> our Discord 
definitely not a cult, has recently decided <laughs> that our patron saint of what is still for sure not a cult. Definitely not a cult. The Death Fairy. Tracy, who who drew that art? Great question. Uh, that was by Kejitan Obarski, who is an animator, photographer, musician, and misanthrope. And this gentleman makes the most fantastic gifts. Search Death Fairy, the official patron saint of the Willing and Fable podcast. <laughs> of the Willing and Fable podcast, not a cult. Not a cult. For tax purposes, definitely not a cult. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're just being silly now. I hope that you had a really wonderful time listening to our first episode in our spooky series. Spooky. This is the first part of our October series featuring all some, let's be honest, some of the really cool stories that we get excited about during this time of year. Next week will be a little bit more spook-centric and a little bit less author-centric. Mm-hmm. So. So get ready for it. And. And, <laughs> and thank you so much for listening. Remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do... Tell a friend. Ooh, or tell a foe. (laughs) We'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.